Today on Ag News Daily. Now that I'm in this role, it kind of marries the two together, customer support and engineering. It's really a perfect fit um, because in my role, I, I truly do get to be and am looked upon as the technical expert, but still continue to wear that hat of the customer and be the voice of the customer. Good afternoon and happy Friday. It's Ashton Carr joined by the Lady Howell. I'm joining. I've got to say, I'm really excited that it's Friday. I was just telling you my days feel all wonky because I thought today was Saturday. So I've been a little lazy today, I have to admit. Hey, that's okay, Ashton. Uh, Today has felt a little weird for me too. But I tell you what, Ashton, I was going to ask you, I I just got finished reading your weekly newsletter column that you wrote in our Global Ag Network newsletter. And you were talking about farming on Mars. I'm curious to see how you thought of that topic. Well, I was just kind of looking for some things to talk about in our weekly newsletter because honestly, there wasn't too too much going on last week. And I had read that article um, on agdaily.com and I just, I thought it was super interesting. And I've, I think I said this in the article, but I've heard about people being able, I don't know if this is, this is true or not. I'm pretty sure I heard it on Twitter about being able to, I guess, reserve or buy a spot on Mars if and when we're able to actually travel as civilians, which I don't think will be for, you know, quite a long time. But I just, I don't know, I thought it was pretty interesting how they're kind of using those microorganisms and that bacteria to help plants to be able to grow outside of the ecosystems that we have here on Earth and actually be able to farm on Mars. I just thought it was really interesting. That is interesting. Maybe someday you'll pioneer that for us, Ashton. Possibly. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I wasn't ever like one of those kids that was really into space as a child, but it's really interesting. Yeah, I wasn't either. To be honest, the idea of um, living on Mars, traveling to Mars, it's not appealing to me. But it is to other people, so to each their own. To each their own, indeed, Delaney. But uh, what what news have you been watching today? I'm excited to see because there's been kind of a lot going on, surprisingly, for a Friday. Yeah, you know, I have been reading quite a few stories, trying to see if there's been an angle on these U.S.-China talks that happened in Anchorage, Alaska yesterday. And from what I'm finding, agriculture doesn't seem like it was really brought up. In all fairness, it sounds like these talks didn't go super well for either party, China or the United States. And they got off to a pretty fire start, it sounds like. There was some pretty sharp remarks on both sides. The Biden administration, obviously, is concerns on... um, their human rights issues going on in China. Those comments were made. They also talked about some cyber security attacks and issues in theft. So that was mentioned as well. On the Chinese side, they made quite a few remarks saying things like, the United States has a struggling democracy. We have poor treatment of minorities. And they criticized our foreign trade and policies. So it doesn't sound like it was overly productive meeting altogether, Ashton. Yeah, I don't think so either, Delaney. I mean, neither of us were inside of that meeting, so we don't really you know, know for sure. But it doesn't sound um, too friendly, I would say. Uh, no. And these remarks were all made, granted, while they were allowing reporters in to take photos. So 
there was a lot said in those, you know, usually photos take a few minutes. This apparently these opening remarks in front of journalists lasted more than an hour as both sides went back and forth, uh, firing remarks off at each other, it sounds like. Sounds like a touch of high school drama or something. Well, that's sometimes it seems like how it is when we get trade deals negotiated, I suppose. But this is on the backs of yet again another USDA export sale uh, for the 2020-2021 marketing year heading to, again, China. Four out of the last five days this week, or four out of the five days this week, because we did have one today, have seen large export sales heading to China. So while they might be upset with us, they are at least continuing to make large purchases. Ashton, today's purchase was an 800,000 metric tons flash sale. And so in total, let's see, I think we're up to about 3.876 million metric tons of corn for the past four consecutive days. So that's really some strong demand that we are continuing to see from China. And I'm making note right now, Ashton, to make sure we talk about that on Monday's special Market Monday episode. All righty, Delaney. Well, moving right along here, talking about JBS. A court has ordered JBS South America to pay $3.62 million in damages after an outbreak of COVID-19 at a beef plant in northern Brazil. The damages ruling was related to workers' contamination in São Miguel do Guper. I'm, again, not very great with pronunciations, but uh, JBS is the town's biggest employer in that part of Brazil. It takes the first victory for the plaintiffs since labor prosecutors started suing the company last year over a lack of adequate health protocols. And while we were at the height of the pandemic last spring into summer, we heard quite a bit of cases similar to that of JBS and, you know, those involved um, with JBS specifically. JBS faced at least 18 lawsuits in specialized labor courts last year as prosecutors sought to force the, the meatpacker to implement stricter worker protections in multiple facilities. The plant in Sao Miguel was the main source of contamination and spread of the virus there. In the ruling, which was dated as March 14th, Labor Judge Eldison Cortez ordered JBS to pay damages and an additional 20 million reals to cover costs related to the proceedings. The ruling also entails a series of obligations, such as helping test workers with COVID symptoms and imposing a six-foot distance between them at the production line. And I feel like this is just kind of a redo or, you know, kind of like a deja vu of what it was like this time last year, kind of implementing these COVID-19 restrictions and making sure that, you know, workers in meatpacking plants are protected. But JBS hasn't said whether or not they're going to appeal from this, but we might be having to cover that bit of news later on next week. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you are talking um, JBS and beef production. Ashton, I've got a little bit of an update here for our beef producing friends. You know, I have been watching markets a lot more closely since I've stepped into my role as trader, uh, trader PhD. And I was reading some interesting commentary today, Ashton, talking about packer margins, more specifically looking at the 
uh, packing house in Tama, Iowa, which I think is technically a subsidiary of Marfrig Global Foods slash JBS. But it was looking at producer and packer margins here over the past, well, really six or so years. And as of latest estimates, um, margins for beef packers are starting to slowly trend upwards again. I know a lot of folks have been concerned for some time, Ashton, that with the rising cost of corn, their feed cost obviously was going up pretty substantially and markets weren't necessarily catching up as quickly slash packers weren't necessarily willing to pay quite as much. We do have a cattle on feed report coming out later today after the recording of this podcast. But in the meantime, we've seen uh, live cattle and feeder cattle both pull back here today. However, I think the long-term story is that producers are still able to make pretty good profits. The latest estimates are are pegging producer profits. That's a little bit of a mouthful, Ashton, to say, but $316.35 per head of cattle, even with today's pretty high packer margins. But National Beef Packing Company, which is the facility in Tama, Iowa, said that Packer margins are so great and they believe demand for beef is so strong long-term, they're going to be spending $100 million to more than double their slaughter capacity at their plant in Tama, Iowa, and should be increasing that slaughter capacity to about 2,500 cattle daily. And this is just a little, I mean, it's pretty small town packing facility, but they do some custom um, niche marketing type of uh cattle there. I believe they're just black cattle only. And so they're a little bit of a niche market, but I think this, the, the real story here, Ashton, is that while packer margins are high, I know that gets a lot of beef producers. Um, producer margins sound like they'll be high as well. And things look pretty strong here for beef demand long-term. So that's always positive for beef producers. I think beef is probably my favorite protein out there. So I probably account for a good chunk of that support, I've got to say. Yeah, me too. We just had some hamburgers last night. We've tri- we try to break up our proteins, so we're supporting all protein industries. But yes, beef is still by far my favorite. Well, Delaney, talking about some protein news, this is just a small update on the cases of bird flu in Europe, specifically in France. I haven't talked about it in quite some time because France did instill some pretty harsh restrictions on poultry farms and duck farms. They culled over 3 million head of more, more on the duck side, from what I understand, than any other poultry. But either way, They are now easing up bird flu measures on poultry farms as cases are beginning to fall. So it was kind of a a quick turnaround, I suppose. It wasn't anything like previous bird flu outbreaks, but some good news for our friends over in France. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way, Ashton. Let's see, though. I really don't have any other news updates for today other than talking markets. What about you? I'm kind of all out today as well, just kind of looking forward to what the markets had to say today on this Friday afternoon. Well, I'm glad you're glad because they certainly had a turnaround here on this Friday afternoon and markets rebounded well off of not quite all of their losses from yesterday's sell-off, but we're pretty close to being back to neutral where we were 
pre-Thursday's trading session. So kicking things off here, first in the May corn contract up 11 and a quarter cent to close at 5.57 and three quarters. The December up three and a half to close at 5.71 and a half. Soybeans today, the May contract up 24 cents to close at 14.16 and a quarter. The November up 13 and a quarter and three quarters cents to close at 12.20. In the Chicago wheat pits, May down three and a half cents today to close at 627. The July down two and three quarters cents to close at 619 and a quarter. As I mentioned, livestock sold off ahead of today's cattle on feed report. April live cattle down 17 and a half cents to close at 118.40. The June down 97 and a half cents to close at 118.67 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the April contract shedding $2 today to close at 139.42 and a half. The May down $1.95 to close at 144.67 and a half. And in lean hogs, we saw the May contract shed seven cents today to close at 94.92 and a half. The June still above $100, closing 57 cents higher to end the week out at $100.60 per hundredweight. And checking out class three dairy milk futures for today, Ashton, as we wrap up the markets. The April down 28 cents today to close at 17.06. The May down 12 cents to close at 17.78. Without further ado, Ashley, let's kick it over to our continued Agrad 30 Under 30 series today with Allison Cox. Well, for today's 30 Under 30 interview, we are talking to Allison Cox, who is a Customer Support Engineer with John Deere. I believe I got that title correctly. I mean, you're still getting used to it, Allison, because this is kind of an upgrade for you. So hopefully I got that correctly. But Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, and and thank you for having me. And yep, you're exactly right. That is is my title and um, just a few months in, but I'm excited to share a little bit about it. So why don't you go ahead and, and share a little bit about it and what you were doing previously and compared to the position that you're in now? Yeah, so um, a little bit even before my time at John Deere, I'll start with my my background in, in college. So my background is agricultural engineering. And so it's really kind of how I got my foot in the door at John Deere. But after starting at John Deere in manufacturing engineering, I learned pretty quickly that maybe engineering actually wasn't for me. And the main reason is because I felt a big disconnect um, from the customer. And really, that is my passion and why I wanted to work for John Deere and why I started um, to pursue a career in the ag industry in the first place was just my passion for um, farmers and agriculturalists. And so after that first internship in manufacturing engineering, I requested to try out a role in customer support. And the rest is history because I've been in customer support ever since. And so at the time that I was selected for the 30 under 30 program, my title was product support representative, which is still in that customer support organization that I was talking about. And customer support is really fun because you get to have a lot of conversations with engineers, have a lot of influence with the design teams, the test teams, um, and really be just as smart as the engineers and have just as much technical expertise as them, but you get to wear the hat of the customer. And so you're sitting in those types of meetings like design reviews um, and diagnostic reviews and just those really early on meetings before, you know, years before even the product is maybe released. 
And you're wearing the hat of the customer and, and poking holes in our designs or asking questions that the customer might ask. So it's really fun. I get to work fairly closely with customers. Um, but I also get to still have that kind of technical piece that ties in with my, my background and my major in engineering. And so really what I'm doing in, in this current role that I'm in as customer support engineer and how that looks different than my previous role in, in product support, um, I'm really just getting even more deep into the technical space. And so it's funny how it, it kind of came full circle. I said, you know, I entered into John Deere and said, I don't know if I want to be an engineer. Um, and then really now that I'm in this role, it kind of marries the two together, customer support and engineering. It's really a perfect fit um, because in my role, I, I truly do get to be and am looked upon as the technical expert, but still continue to wear that hat of the customer and be the voice of the customer in meetings um, and in conversations with engineering. You know, Allison, when I'm thinking about customer support and, you know, customer relations, it's not really, you know, your title that kind of comes to mind. I think what you're describing, you know, your day to day, it, it sounds quite interesting, which is, you know, kind of the contrary, I feel like, of the typical customer support stigma. And I think that these relationships that we build between producer and consumer are, you know, quite valuable. So what do you have to say on, you know, the relationships that, that you're building? Why is this kind of sector of the industry valuable to a company? Yeah, and I also appreciate uh, a little side note that you had mentioned the stigma around customer support because so often before I get the chance to describe my role, a question that people ask me is, oh, so do you answer like the phone every day? Or yeah, are you answering the calls from the customer? And that is not at all what my day-to-day -day looks like. Um, now, granted, we do have call centers, right? We do have a place for John Deere customers to call John Deere directly, but that is not really at all my, my main focus or role is to put out fires. It's really to think long-term and then to answer your second question of, you know, why, why is this role important in, in companies is because, like I said, early on in the design phase, um, you know, we're not putting out fires yet, but we need to have that mindset early on, right? Five years down the road, like I get to work with some really cool um, future products that I really can't even share much about, which is really one of the funnest parts of my job is knowing what's coming in five to 10 years from John Deere. Um, but yeah, I get to sit in those conversations five to 10 years down the road and start asking the questions of, have we thought about this? Because the farmer is going to ask about this or have we thought about, you know, what happens when this doesn't work or when it breaks down? Because, you know, obviously we never design a product with um, the idea that it will break down or, or in hopes that it won't work. But because we are people and we are imperfect, we will make imperfect products and there will be mistakes along the way. So it's just trying to mitigate that risk as early on as possible. So our customers have a better experience and less downtime in the field. You know, whether or not people consider positions like yours in customer service to be, you know, pretty exciting or not, you know, the, there's so many cogs that go into the machine to get everything running. And, you know, you're just one of those cogs. So I think that, you know, this position is very valuable, especially to a company like John Deere, but kind of moving on, talking a little bit more about your experience as 
um, someone in the 30 under 30 cohort, a couple of the folks that we've talked to, they do, you know, further education or they are involved in community groups. Are you a part of anything of that sort? Yeah. And so to be honest, I think that's a large part of why I was selected and it was really just a humble experience in general, but um, one of the benefits of working at John Deere outside of my day-to-day job is that I am very well supported and even encouraged to get involved in my community and to get involved in those quote-unquote extracurricular type activities. So I, I do stay really involved in my community. Um, some of those through John Deere and some of those just through organizations I personally am interested in. Um, and so one of those, for example, that I'm probably most passionate about is the FFA or the National FFA organization. So because I didn't grow up on a farm, FFA was really what made me aware of and interested in agriculture. And so John Deere is a huge longtime supporter, um, actually the longest corporate supporter of the National FFA. And so through that, I'm able to um, stay really active in the local alumni, as well as through John Deere's corporate FFA alumni chapter. And I currently serve as the the co-vice president for the Des Moines, Iowa region, um, as well as I recently was elected to serve on the National FFA Alumni and Supporters um, Advisory Committee. So that's a new role that I'm really excited about jumping into to kind of get a view outside of John Deere and outside of Iowa on a national level, like how can we continue to support FFA chapters? So something that John Deere really encourages um, and I'm thankful for. So Allison, I just have, you know, one more question before we kind of wrap things up here and I let you get back to doing your customer service job, but um, that's just kind of being, you know, what this experience has been like for you. You know, you're not somebody that was super involved in agriculture growing up to now being a 30 under 30 in Ag Grads magazine. You know, what has that experience been like for you? If you could, I guess, go back and tell, you know, your younger self, and I mean, your your article, you joined FFA your junior year in high school. How, what would you go back and, you know, say to yourself, you know, as to where you are now? Yeah, so thinking back to my high school days as someone who I remember just joining FFA or walking into the ad classroom for my first couple of times and how um, I was really fortunate that I was a part of a, you know, FFA chapter in high school and just went to a high school in general that was really supportive of people with different backgrounds. But still, despite all that, you know, we each of us kind of have, um, some lack in confidence at times. And so I just remember feeling like an outsider and like, I'll never know enough about agriculture because I didn't grow up on a farm or not growing up on a farm. Like, why would John Deere want to hire me when I actually now see that as quite the contrary? I really believe um, that although people that I work with that grew up on a farm or have a really strong ag background, like they bring something to the table, um, but people that don't have an act background and did not grow up on a farm also bring something to the table. And it's totally different what they bring to the table and that seeing how both of those working together can actually create a better solution. Um, I just think that's a great thing to keep in mind for those that also don't have ag backgrounds that you actually bring a different perspective um, to the table or to your team that someone might not have thought of before. So you actually have even more value than you realize. Yeah, and I I think that it's funny because quite a few of the current cohort of 30 under 30s weren't involved super heavily in agriculture growing up. So it just 
never fails to amaze me the diversity and the capability of the people that are in the agriculture industry. And you're one of them, Allison. And I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing your capabilities and your creativity and all of the greatness that made you on the 30 under 30 cohort this year. Yeah. And thanks again, Ashton, for having me. And I appreciate what you and Delaney do on your podcast. I really enjoy listening to it myself. So thanks again. Thanks again there to Allison for coming on and talking to us today. Yet another person who wasn't involved in agriculture growing up, but has made it to the AgRad 30 under 30 list. Delaney, I've got to say, I'm really surprised that there has been such a number of people like Allison on the 30 under 30 list. It just blows my mind how adaptive and inclusive the ag industry really is. It certainly is, Ash, and I'm disappointed I missed out on that interview, getting to know Allison a little bit better. But don't worry, we'll continue these fantastic conversations with other young people in agriculture here for the quite a few next few weeks, because they're just maybe three or four interviews out of the 30 that we have finished up so far. But if you missed last week's 30 Under 30 interview, you can go back and check it out at agnewsdaily.com, as well as all of our past episodes, our new podcast, the Millennial Ag Podcast at globalagnetwork.com. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.